We all love our friends. They're all people who we have learned to love and appreciate in life. Sometimes we have friends for many, many years. This past Wednesday evening, I was able to go to the East Huntsville congregation, which is where Coretta and I got married. It's also the place where I preached one of my first sermons many, many, many years ago. And we were able to renew a number of old friendships, people we've known for a long, long, long time. On the other hand, we sometimes make new friends. They're people who we find much in common with, with whom we enjoy their presence, and we like to do things with them. In John chapter 15, verses 13 through 15, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he made it clear to them that there was no greater sacrifice that one could make than to lay down his life for his friends. And then he said to them in verse 14, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Friendship. You and I need to realize what it means to be a friend of God. I'd like to be able to just describe to you what friendship is, and what friendship involves, and how you and I can be a friend of God, but Sometimes it's so much easier if we take the life of a person and we try to explain it. And so this morning, we're going to talk about Abraham, whom, as Brother Robert read, was a friend of God. You know, as you think about the life of Abraham, he was an amazing character with so many admirable qualities. You can think about his relationship with his family, his nephew Lot, you think about his relationship with his wife Sarah, his relationship with his son Isaac, oh there's so much about Abraham to talk about, but he was the recipient of some great promises. God had told him that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Imagine telling you that someone in your family would impact the life of every person on the face of the planet. Pretty significant. Not only was that, he was told that he was going to receive a place and an inheritance. But you know, he also responded with great faith. He was a man who had so much in common with God. He delighted in his friendship with God. This morning, I want you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to use a little bit different approach from my normal approach this morning. Normally, I would say we have three points. They're all going to be alliterated. Uh, We're not going to do that this morning. What we are going to do is we're going to take the passages from Genesis 15 And we're going to explore them and the great power of the lessons that is found within this text. Let's begin with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your 
shield, your exceedingly great reward. Let's explore that for just a minute. God said, I am your shield and your reward. What is a shield? It's something to protect you with. If you are going to consider armament, you want something to be able to throw up to take the fiery darts as Paul would talk about to the Ephesians. Something to be able to protect you with. And so you throw up a shield to deflect those things. So you might want to call that a protector. And then God said, you're exceedingly great reward. That's provisions. Now, to understand this, you really have to look at the context. And so if you want to look there in your Bibles, you're going to find out that after these things refers to the events of chapter 14. And Abraham had gone and defeated five kings in rescuing Lot. Just very briefly, here's what happened. The kings who were in the area around the Dead Sea, Sodom, Gomorrah, and so forth, those kings had been paying tribute to Chedorlaomer. And they had been paying this tribute for about a dozen years. And they decided, we don't want to pay that anymore. And so they stopped. And these kings came against them and fought in a battle. And Lot, along with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and that Dead Sea area, were taken captive. When word came to Abraham about that, Abraham got together his servants. He went and pursued them and won and brought back Lot, brought back all the provisions and all the booty, if you will, that had been taken. But when it came to Abraham, he took nothing from them. He didn't take a reward. In fact, if you go back to chapter 14, verses 22 through 24, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from the thread to a sandal strap, and that I will take nothing or take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who are with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Abram said, I don't want anything. I don't want you to make me rich. You are not my reward. The Most High God, He is my reward. When you think about what occurred in chapter 14, to me that's amazing. Here's a man who takes just his servants and he goes against the confederacy of kings and he wins. He defeats them. How does that take place? God was his shield. He understood that God was his protector. In Psalm 84 and verse 11, David writes, For the Lord our God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly or those who walk uprightly. God is going to protect those who love him. Those who are his, here's the word, friends. 
In Psalm 121, verses 2, 1 and 2, and then verse 8, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Dropping down to verse 8, The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God is our shield. But as you think about God protecting and providing for Abraham, He certainly does us. You know, I want to use an illustration from the book of Exodus, chapter 12. As you think about how God protects us, I want you to think about what occurred when that final plague was brought on the Egyptians. There was the death of the firstborn. And God told them that what I want you to do is to put blood on the doorpost and on the lintel that goes over your door. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. In verse 13 of Exodus 12. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Fast forward to the New Testament. What is it that is a shield to us from the wrath of sin? Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Our shield today, if you will, is the blood of Jesus Christ that prevents us from being conquered by sin. Of course, God not only is our shield there, but He's our shield in temptation. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. God knows my resistance. He knows how much I can stand. And He is like a shield that prevents sin from being able to conquer me. And thus we learn to lean on God. We learn, like Abraham did, to put our confidence in the Most High God. And in 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Obviously you recognize I've got to go faster than I'm going now. So let's go to verses 2 through 5. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me since I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. What a great promise. God had told Abraham, Through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God had said, you will have an heir. Well, now, who's that heir going to be? What patience this requires. 
because the promise is not going to take place immediately. See, here's the problem that you and I have. When God makes a promise to us, and that promise is not fulfilled right away, we begin to mull in our minds that God has somehow forgotten. I've heard people tell me they'll do something before. And then a year pass, a couple of year passes, and they've not done it. And you know what I begin to think in my mind? They've forgotten what they promised. And I recognize that maybe there's a reality. I've, I've done the same thing. Well, I want you to listen to Psalm 42 and verse 9 and 77, 9. I say to, I will say to the God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Chapter 77, verse 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut in his anger shut up his tender mercies? Does God somehow forget the promises that he has made to the point where I'm beginning to question God? The promises of God require patience on my part. And here's why. Because God's timetable is not our timetable. God does not count time like you and I do. We take out our watches. We go five, four, three, two, one. We even count the seconds. When I go to 2 Peter 3 verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Perhaps Peter was making reference to Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. Let me tell you how the world thinks and how we think sometimes. Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And we say, okay, Lord, it has been almost 2,000 years since Jesus left, and where is he? But if I use just what Peter and David have said, that's only a couple of days to God. Not really significant at all. Because God doesn't count time like you and I count time. And the truth is, from the time that God made the promise to Abraham to the time Isaac came was 25 years. 25 years. Let me just point out to you, this is just in passing. I think there's a lot of typology in this chapter. Two things that just immediately pop out to my mind are the fact of not a servant, but a son. Not going to be Eliezer. You're going to have your own son. We'll find that in Hebrews chapter 3. And like God, he gave his only begotten son. Listen to Hebrews 3, 5. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house. Moses was only a servant. Jesus is the son. Eliezer was only a servant. Isaac would be that son. And then Hebrews eleven seventeen, 17, 
says, just like Abraham gave his only begotten son, Isaac, that special son of promise, John 3.16, God gave his only begotten son. Here's our problem. Most of us want immediate fulfillment. I know that when someone tells me something, I really want it to happen immediately. But do you realize the reason why God does not do things immediately with regards to His promises is due to His patience with us. We tend to think about our patience. God, I want it. I want it now. And instead of us having to say, well, I'm being patient with God, God is being patient with us. 2 Peter 3, 9 verse says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And His assurance has to sustain us through the tough times. When the writer of the book of Hebrews was describing the events that they were going through, he says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, and having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You see, what he is saying is you don't give up. Verse 39, 38 and 39, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back into perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. So if promises require patience, on my part to some degree, but most certainly on God's side, what about us with other people? Should we be patient with other people? What about those who sin against us? God gives us time to repent. Should we give people time to recognize what has happened? Time to think about the consequences? Most certainly. Those whom we are trying to teach. I tell you what I like. I like immediate results in everything. But that just doesn't happen. And someone says, but you can go to the Bible in Acts 2. Peter and the apostles got up and preached. 3,000 people obeyed. Yes. But they forget the personal ministry of John the Baptist, who was to be a forerunner, prepare the hearts of the people. They forget that the Lord and His apostles in their personal ministry had taught these same people. What the apostles did was simply to reap the harvest for the Lord. We sometimes want to tell someone, here's what the Bible says you must do, and expect them to do it immediately. We've got to learn patience. James 5 and verse 7 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rains. Okay, number three, let's look at verse six. Verse six. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is really where I was going to preach from, but the rest of that was just a setup. 
What is righteousness and how does one attain it? It was accounted to him for righteousness. How did he get it? It was reckoned or accounted, or if you're reading the English Standard, counted. You see, these are accounting terms where a person puts down what is owed or what is paid. Let me give you a good illustration of what I'm talking about. In Luke chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, in the parable of the unjust steward, it said, So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. You have a ledger, if you will. How much do you owe? Oh, a hundred measures of oil. We'll write down fifty. Cut it in half. What is written down or what is accounted is what counts. When it, you look at our ledger, so to speak, none of us are righteous. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. If you want to pull out the ledger for every one of us here today and look and see, is there anything in our column that says you are righteous? And the ledger for every one of us says no. Romans 4, verses 5 and 6, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. In order to obtain this righteousness, this standing, one must believe, that is, have an active faith. Because faith is a work of obedience. Yes, I said that right. Faith is a work of obedience. In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, they said to him, What? Shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Faith is working what God wants done. And then when I go to James chapter 2, the passage that we began with for our lesson text, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac on his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. What you see is the way that you and I get righteousness written down to our account is when we believe God like Abraham did, an active faith. Here's two extremes that we have to avoid. One extreme says, but I'm righteous myself. Look at all the good deeds that I've done. Look at all the, the things that I have performed for the Lord. And let's tally them up. In Ezekiel 33, 13, he says, When I say to the righteous that he will surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. 
But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. You see, if I get to looking and saying, look how righteous I am, Lord. No, 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 because my righteousness can't save me. Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus talked about some who trusted that they were righteous and despised the others. But on the other hand, another extreme that so many of us live with is we worry about our friendship with God. We somehow doubt God's provision to be both our shield and our exceedingly great reward or our protector and our provider. We doubt the blood of Christ in being able to cover our sins. In 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. We could look intently at some passages like Romans 1, 16 and 17 that says, He was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel is God's righteousness revealed. It tells us what we do to be righteous with God. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. And then about Abraham. Romans 4, 20 and 21. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, being fully convinced that what He had promised, He was also able to perform. Now very quickly, let's look at verses 7 and 8. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? I want to key on those last few words there. Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? There's a human desire to want to know what the future holds. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to your descendants, to your family, how many of you would like to know what your children will be when they grow up? What about your grandchildren? Would you like to be able to see into their future and to be able to see what they will be? Some of you might say, well, I sure would. You give, you give me a glimpse into that? Let me see it? I'd love to see that. Sometimes we wish we had not asked. You drop down to verse 13. Then he said to Abram, No, certainly. He said, How will I know? God said, No, certainly, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And we'll serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. How many of you would like 
to be able to look at the future and then someone show you your future and you look and your grandchildren make bad decisions. And you see one of them sitting in a prison. How many of you would like to look to the future and see not only bad decisions made by them, but by others around them, and they be held captive by foreign nations? It's that. I wish I hadn't asked. Maybe I shouldn't see. It reminds me a lot of King Zedekiah. You know, Babylon was oppressing the people of Judah. Zedekiah was vacillating between, am I going to serve God or am I going to serve the people who are putting me here? He was a weak, indecisive leader. You get to Jeremiah 37, verses 13 through 17. Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah remained there many days. And then Zedekiah king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in the house, saying, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There he is. Then he said, You shall be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon. Well, that really wasn't the message I wanted to hear. In fact, you go to 2 Kings 25, verse 7. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him to Babylon. You want to know what's going to happen, Zedekiah? They're going to kill your children right in front of your eyes. That's going to be the last thing that you see. Peter wanted to know. The Lord has said, I'm going to be betrayed. All the apostles are sitting around that table. I just want to key on verses 24 and 25. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask whom it was whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Peter won't know who's going to be betraying him. Obviously, we know it's Judas. But you drop down a few verses later, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. How many of you would like to see your future? What does your future hold? Let me tell you what your future holds. God's promises will come to pass. Titus 1 and verse 2 tells us, and hope of eternal life in which God who cannot lie promised before times eternal. Hebrews 6 and verse 18 puts it almost like that when it says it's impossible for God to lie. Your future depends upon you and your choices. It will depend upon your children and upon their choices and their children, and their choices. There's so much to learn from Abraham. I I could spend a lot of time, just with this chapter, we we skipped over a lot of it. You see, the truth is, I look back and I see Abraham, the friend of God, and God had confidence in Abraham. God could use a man like Abraham 
Genesis 18, 19 says, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God said, I know Abraham. He's a man of faith. And whatever promises I have made to Abraham, I'm not worried about them because I am going to be able to keep those promises to him. Let me tell you why Abraham and Sarah stand out so much in the Bible. Because how they dealt with the promises that God made to them. This is where we're going to end. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those, or they who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You and I can join Abraham and Sarah as people of faith, People with the confidence in the promises of God. People who have made it our goal to go to that heavenly country. What a great man Abraham was. The friend of God. We can be friends of God as well. If you're not a Christian... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Him and be baptized. The Lord adds you to His church. You're His friend. You walk with God daily. What friends do when friends offend one another, they apologize. They say, I'm sorry. They change their ways. If that's who you are, you've offended God. Say you're sorry and change your ways. Would you come while we stand inside?